0: All right, church, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab those and turn with me to the book of Matthew, uh, Matthew chapter 6, uh, Matthew chapter 6. Before we get started, uh, I want to give a shout out to a group here, where's my White Oak people at? Don't raise your hands, give a hooper or holler or something, my goodness, that's right. Uh, guys, give, give this group a welcome, I trust these folks, so thanks for being here, so good to be here. Uh, Pastor John's their family pastor there and really wears a lot of hats there at White Oak and God's just doing such great things and uh, Pastor John and I go way back and so they were here for a retreat up at Doe River and they came to be part of us this morning So so glad you guys are here. Hopefully you're uh, fed and feel well loved uh, this morning So uh, as a faith family, if you're guests, so good to see some of our college students back in the house I know you guys will be making your way back in over the next few weeks Uh, But we have been on a journey over the last couple of weeks uh, beginning of the new year that we're calling the 31 day journey uh, in prayer and so I hope you guys have been tracking with us in that it looks like a different a few different ways uh, so we're preaching on prayer talking about what that means having some times of corporate prayer on the five Sundays in January uh, also our life groups are being recentered a little bit uh, more than usual to pray over one another and to pray for things that God's doing uh, in our church, uh, but also we've developed this 31-day prayer journey guide, and so if this is your first Sunday back in the new year, we'd like for you to pick one of these up. Uh, they're out there at the Hub, or you can also download it on our app or on the website. Uh, basically, each day there is a, a topic that the elders have said, and we want to pray over this, and there's a passage of scripture uh, that represents that topic, and then a devotional and guided prayer uh, written by members of our church uh, that kind of guides you into praying. So I pray that this is just a, a launching pad and for all of us to be praying the same things united uh, in prayer and um, what God's doing in our faith family over this uh, season of extended focus time in prayer. Uh, we've also uh, made these books available to you. I talked about these last week throughout the Hub as well. Uh, Tim Keller's book on prayer, just absolute gold. Uh, and then Don Whitney, a professor up at Southern Seminary, Praying the Bible. Uh, very, very good we're making those available at cost to you guys back there uh, cash only sorry I know no one carries cash these days but it's back there so those will be back there for the next few weeks uh, as far as our series is concerned but we're going to talk a lot about prayer um, in Colossians chapter 4 verse 2 is kind of our launching pad where Paul writes to the church at, at the Colossae and says devote yourselves to prayer or the ESV says continue steadfastly In prayer that what does it look like for a group of people for a church for individuals to be devoted to prayer to really set aside our lives to say we're going to walk in a constant rhythm of dependence on God of intimacy and relationship with God like we just saw John on the video that says how can you have a relationship with someone that you never talked to and so we're kind of rediscovering that for some of us that have grown up in the church prayer can just seem stale and stagnant and some of us that are new to church go I don't even know where to begin To pray and talk to God and wherever we are in between, what does it look like for a group of people to be devoted to prayer? Because we want to see God move and we do not have what it takes to transform hearts and lives. And so we're saying, what does this look like? God, shape us, mold us into this type of So we looked at what it means to have a constant praying without ceasing. That was the model for the Apostle Paul. We saw that model in the life of Jesus, this constant rhythm of abiding in with your relationship with your Father, that prayer is very much just a constant posture of our hearts toward God. And last week we looked at praying in community. What does it mean for us to live life together, to be coveted together in membership, in small groups, and one-on-one, and in relationships with one another? We're family. And one of the ways that that shows itself in the church is through praying for one another. You see so many admonitions in Scripture for us to do just that, to actually go on behalf of God for someone else. And so I pray you've been meditating on that. What does that look like for me? How, who's praying over me? How am I praying into the life of someone else? My goodness, I would love to see that become part of the culture here. Now, but today we want to go a little bit deeper. Uh, and look at the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6. I'll have you there, and we read that and prayed that together earlier. Uh, But there's always a tension when we talk about things like this. So is prayer this devoted time in the morning or in the evening or whatever it is with my prayer list and that I work through, is that what prayer is? Because I think so many times that's all that we see prayer to be. Uh, But then sometimes we look over here and say, oh, no, no, it's never that. It's never that discipline, it's all organic, you know? And it's just the following the spirit. And so I just pray these little flare prayers throughout the day cuz I'm walking with Jesus and me and him are walking through life together. Which one is it? And what we're saying is yes, it's both. Is it this constant uh, position of our hearts that says, "I need you, God. Oh, I need you." And it's constant prayer. Every time we're anxious, We turn that anxiety into a prayer. Every time we're confused, we go to God in prayer for wisdom. When we go into a situation, a conversation with a person, we're saying, God, give me eyes to see the situation through your perspective. But it's also, if you just do that and you never have a set-aside time where you are focused, where you're disciplined and saying, I'm going to pray about some things. Because sometimes, if I'm just going throughout life, I'm going to miss things that I need to be praying for. And my richness with God is never going to be what it could be if, if there's not a discipline uh, to it. And so listen, discipline is not legalism. Can I get an amen? Anybody? It's not. I think we're so afraid because we're all about grace. And we are all about grace. Nothing we can do to earn God's acceptance. We're about to talk about that. But there's something to be said about obeying Jesus. And chasing hard after Jesus. And setting aside a time, a way to be with Jesus. That is not legalism. That is not devoid of this vibrant walking with Jesus every day and talking with him as you would if he was standing right beside of you. There needs to be a constant balance of both. You see that in Jesus' life? He's praying in situations, but he also has this time where he steals away to pray with his Father. You see both. So... The context of the Sermon on the Mount. We're about to jump in, look at the Lord's Prayer and some of the text around the Lord's Prayer. Um, What does this mean? Uh, What's happening in the Lord's Prayer? So Jesus is teaching uh, to his disciples and there's unbelievers kind of looking in. So he's talking to his disciples, his followers, about what life in the kingdom looks like. And he's unpacking it. If you're going to follow me as king and you're going to reorient, center your life around me, if you're going to live as citizens of the kingdom, here's what life's going to look like. And it's in direct opposition to the religious culture of that day that had just seen the duty of religion and not the delight of a relationship with God. He says, so he'd say things like, you have heard this. And I'm not discrediting this, but I say to you this. He's saying it goes much, much deeper than just external conformity to the law. The law is not bad. The law is good. But it goes much deeper. It's about your heart toward God. If you want to know more about that, go download our podcast from the store where we preached the Bible last year. We taught on the Sermon on the Mount, kind of an overview sermon. So go back and listen to that if you want to know more about what Jesus is teaching here. But we're jumping right in the middle of that conversation he's having. And so kind of the big banner over the sermon is that righteousness, what it means to be accepted before God, is not, is more about the posture of your heart than not just the performance of your hands. That's what he's saying righteousness is more about your heart before God than what you're doing for God. That's the whole kind of the thesis of the sermon, if you will. Here's what the kingdom looks like. It's a transformation of the inside that will work its way out. Okay, that's what he's preaching. And then right in the middle of it, he instructs his disciples about prayer. It's a piece of being a citizen of the kingdom. It's a piece of walking with God. And so here's, the, here's kind of the warning that I would put out in front of us as we jump in. It is not enough to simply pray more. Like, that's not the goal. So we're talking about prayer, and everyone's like, yeah, my prayer life probably not where it needs to be. Anybody with me there? It's like, I need to work on this. And we're not saying just start praying and do more. Although, if you're not praying, start praying. I mean, it's that simple. Just jump in. But that's not enough. The Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus would say, that's not enough. There's more to it. It's not about being even better prayers. We can be busy in prayer, but still be far from God. Think about that. So maybe all these admonitions to pray, you go, man, Derek, I got that licked, man. I got my quiet time. I got my list, and they're color-coordinated, and I'm praying. over. I'm killing this whole prayer thing. And I think Jesus is warning to all of us. So for those who of us who need to jump in and begin a life of prayer, and for those of us who have been consistent in prayer for a long time, it's not enough. You can be busy saying things to God, maybe even write things to God, and still be far from Him. And that's the warning that he sets up. He gives us some potential errors, Jesus does, and then when he gets into the Lord's Supper, he says, no, here's how to do it. Here's how to instruct into prayer. So as we jump into this, let me invite all of us to fight the familiar, okay? Because many of us, if not most of us, even if you don't have a church background, you've heard the Lord's Prayer. Maybe you can even quote the Lord's Prayer. You can't quote any other passage of Scripture, but you can kind of mumble your way through the Lord's Prayer. Uh, It's familiar to us. We've heard it, and they become concepts in our minds, rather than the beauty of what it's intended to be. So let's actually submit and say, God, what are you trying to teach us about prayer? What are you warning us about the danger of religious prayer? And so here's a statement, the kind of the thesis of the sermon that we'll unpack as we go along. Here it is. The words will be on the screen, I think. Our praying glorifies God when we are transformed from seeing everything through the lens of self. And we begin seeing everything through a God-centered focus. So we want to pray in such a way, not just pray, but pray in such a way that glorifies God, that shows the beauty and the worth of Him. And it's actually in a posture of worship. And that only happens when we stop viewing prayer as about us. Our perspectives, our wants, our desires. And we begin to see life and thus prayer through a different lens, through a God-centered lens. We're not in the center of it. God's in the center of it. So what does that look like? How do we do that? I think Matthew 6 here will help us. Uh, think about these things so two warnings of jesus you guys ready taking notes here we go jesus warns us first that we could attempt to use prayer as a means for others to accept us kind of a heavy thing said so how do you know that Derek? Well, let's read verse five it's matthew chapter six and when you pray you must not be so he's telling us here's a warning don't be like this like the hypocrites the fakes for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners why? Let's say these there's next five words together. Why, why do they do that? That they may be seen by others. That's the motivation. That we may be seen. Truly I say to you, they have received yeah. their reward. Listen, this is not a charge against public prayers. Like, so, Melanie's in sin because she just prayed in front of us. You know, like, that's not what this is. As a matter of fact, the Scripture is commanding us to pray with other people. We talked about that last week. But it's about the motivation. When you pray in community, when you're Praying over your meals, or you're praying in a gathering like this one. What's your motivation? And he see, Jesus is looking into our hearts, and he knows we're prone to make it about us. We can pray just to be heard with our eloquence. And he says, No, 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 you've got to guard against that. That's about you. You've turned this thing of prayer into this religious, external conformity, and it's all about you. All about you getting glory. All about you receiving attention. Isn't uh, that true? Have you not felt that? In a group, and saying it's so awkward, like that one guy just prayed heaven down, and you're next. And you're going, what am I going to say he just said everything you know like you're trying to think of something like what did I hear Matt Chandler preach on the podcast I'm going to pray some of those things like you're trying to find something meaningful and super spiritual to say and I think that kind of roots down to this heart thing if we need to be needed and we're trying so hard to impress other people listen there's no room for that following Jesus the gospel sets us free from having to be this way isn't that good news it's so good news, this religious game that we play and we compare ourselves to one another. You can be set free from that. Don't let prayer become that. There's a danger. As we talk about being devoted to prayer, it can become about us. But let's keep going. Here's the second warning. Jesus warns us that we could attempt to use prayer as means for God to accept us. So the other warning is not just that we're trying to get accepted by other people, but we can use prayer saying, if I do this the right way, then God's going to love me, that God's going to hear me. So let's read verse 7. Let's get verse 6. We'll be back to it in just a second. Verse 7. And when you pray, do not. So here's a warning. Don't do this. Do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think, what's it say, church? Let's read it together. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. So there's another paradigm. So the hypocrites just want to be seen. But there's a way that we can pray to say, if I do it this way, God's going to hear me. I'm doing it with a motivation to be heard, and Jesus is rebuking us. That there's a a false way to do this. If you go a little deeper in the original languages, I'm a nerd and I like to do that. Okay, so empty phrases. Here's what this means: empty phrases. It's the same idea of babbling. Some of your translations may even say they just babble on. They're just saying a bunch of stuff. And I just wonder if that describes any of our prayer life. Empty phrases, cold, distant, just a bunch of words saying the same old things about the same old things. Anybody? You don't have to raise your hand because it's kind of convicting. Thanks, Joel, for being honest, man. I'm right there with you. Um, Empty phrases. Just heart not really connected. I'm just talking. Not really thinking about it. I'm just talking. I mean, I think sometimes we can veer into that with our prayer life. But then he goes on and says that they will be heard for their many words. And that's different. We would just say, oh, they're just talking a lot, like I tend to do. But it actually goes a little deeper in the original language. It actually has the idea of anxious. The reason they're spending their many words is there is an anxiousness of their heart. So there's empty phrases, cold, distant, far from God, not thinking about what you're saying, and you're so afraid, like, God, I want you to hear me, and I'm just saying all these words to get you to make sure I'm saying it right, and that you're hearing me. Anybody describes your prayer life? Like, I don't know if I'm saying it right. And I'm just just going all these many words, and the motivation here is just to be heard and accepted by God. So listen, so those are the two warnings. Let's begin to go a little deeper to this and apply it to us because you go and live your everyday lives tomorrow, what is Jesus' warnings, if he were here today, what would he, I think, say to our cultural context? Listen, the way you view God, listen, the way you view God will determine the way you view prayer. It will. And so both of those warnings has, you're looking at God in the wrong perspective, and therefore it causes your prayers to be faulty. It all goes down to your viewpoint of God. So it's a self-focus, not a God-focus, and so i gotta ask a question what is the basis of our prayers what is happening when we pray why do we, any of us wretched people have a right to pray is it because of what we do or what he has done and we give the jesus answer jesus what he has done right we're in church we know to give the jesus answer right but think about what that means and this is true for our human relationships and i'm borrowing this from tim keller in his book so Plugged about the book. We don't make any money off of it, but it's a really good book. Here's what he talks about is seeing God through the faulty perspective. Even we can see tendencies of it in our own relationships. And here's what I mean. How you view the relationships with other people changes the way you ask them for things. Think about this. So you see a random stranger out today at lunch, okay? You're going to Holy Taco downtown, best burrito in town. You're going down there, and you're getting a good burrito, and there's a stranger there at the table next to you. And if you ask them, hey, can you get me to, uh, directions to uh, the willow tree, the best coffee in town, other than Steel Rails, Irwin, Ben, wherever you are? That's the best coffee in town. Um, you're in Irwin, okay? This is Johnson City, and I'm just saying. So you, you ask for directions to the coffee shop up the road. Now, that person probably be like, um, Why are you asking me for directions, you random creepy stranger? Like, I, don't, I don't think so. Maybe some people downtown might do that. But, like, usual normal people aren't going to do that. Because that's kind of a normal. You have the right to ask me for directions, right? Let's say you go up to the person, though, next to you at the table at Holy Taco and you say, hey, hey, man, can I borrow your car? <laughs> to which they're going to reply, you're crazy. Like, no, you can't borrow my car. Why? Because you don't have access to the person that way. They don't know you. That, that's completely inappropriate. But yet, if I go to one of my good friends and ask to borrow the car, I mean, hopefully Jeremy would at least think about it. You know, like I'm not that much of a deviant. I mean, hopefully you let me, kind of. Or if I could say to my wife, like, hey, babe, can I borrow your car to go to Willow Tree? I mean, what's mine is yours, and yours is mine, right? She's going to let me borrow a car. Why? Because I have access into her life that way. If my wife was just a random stranger, it would be different. So listen, the basis of the relationship determines the access we have to them. So listen, if you view God as distant, all right, let's get, let's get back here. If you view God as distant, if you view Him as cold, if you view God more like a business owner rather than a father, then your prayers are always going to be these cold, empty phrases that are just babbling on. That's going to be constant in your life. It's constant. So if we view God through the lens of religion, and religion is, think about a business owner. Think Think landlord and tenant type relationships. Who, who, any of you college students, you're people that you live in an apartment that you don't own, you're renting somewhere, okay? So the landlord-tenant relationship, as long as the tenant is paying the bills, as long as the landlord keeps the stuff running and it doesn't, you know, fixes whatever's broken, that relationship's gonna be pretty good. But there's no closeness, there's no intimacy, and I think so many times this is the way we view our relationship with God. I think we see God as more of a business owner it's about religion. I'm having to do all of this stuff for God, and God is entitled now to do all of this stuff for me. It's, he's distant. He's not a father. You have no relationship with him. He's this cosmic being in the sky that I'm supposed to enter into in prayer, and we're always going to be faulty in our prayers if we don't see God rightly. Because then, it's based, if it's business owner, he's, it's about relationship, and it's all based on performance. It's all conditional. So here's how those two things empty out. If you see God that way, the cold, empty phrases, you may say things like, why isn't God blessing me? I've done my part. God needs to do his part. Now, I know that kind of sounds a little, little much when we say it that way, but how many of us have really felt that way? Like, God, I'm trying so hard to live for you, and I'm asking all these prayers, and you're not answering them. And they become cold, because then you begin to distrust the heart of God. And they're just empty phrases. And that's how you're gonna end up because you don't see God rightly. Or then despair, you're gonna get so anxious. Of, I wonder if I've done it right. I wonder if I need to change. Oh man. And you're just all these many words. There's no trust, there's no confidence in God because you see God as so distant from you. And you say this something like this: God isn't blessing me, He isn't hearing me, He isn't answering my prayers because I haven't done enough. I'm not worthy. And it can become cold and just you're so anxious in your prayers. So so we want to guard against that. So what's the alternative? Is there hope? We've seen God wrongly, therefore our prayers are just all just messed up with all these weird motivations, and it's all about us. Because we haven't seen God the right way. But if we can flip it and begin to have a God-centered perspective, we can begin to see what Jesus is trying to teach us here. So here's the third reality. So those two warnings, now Jesus is going to begin to instruct us of what prayer actually looks like. So here's a statement. Jesus instructs us to allow prayer to be in response to God's full acceptance of us in Christ. So prayer is not a means to get acceptance from you. And prayer is not a means to get God's acceptance. Prayer happens, glorifying to God prayer happens, when we say, wait, 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 I am already accepted fully because of Jesus. There's nothing left for me to do. Like, he delights in me. And then, now I'm freed to ask and to trust. That's the difference. He's not your landlord. He's your father. That's who he is. He's he told you that. That's why um, he gives us these admonitions here, uh, these corrections. So let's go back and look. So, so we read verse 5. Let's read verse 6 now. Here's a statement. So Jesus warns us, don't use prayer as a means for others to accept you. But here's what he says. He corrects it. And tells us that prayer is not about being seen by others, but rather being known by God. That's the point of prayer. So then, verse 6 But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. He loves you, he delights in you, he's Father. You can trust, you don't have to, you can be removed. No one else can ever know this is happening, but you have God and you're walking with God and that's enough, that's the goal of prayer. But then in verse eight, in response to the, using prayer as a means for God to accept us, he says this, prayer is not about getting things from God. You guys listening? Prayer is not about getting things from God, but rather about being with God. God glorifying prayer says, God, you are the treasure. Like, you're the prize. So whether you give or whether you take away, like, I have you. That's why he says in verse 8, Do not be like them, about those Gentiles, who are just empty words and many words and anxious, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. You don't need to be anxious. He's more committed to you than you are to Him. He knows what, what you need. So listen, here's the paradigm. So we're not seeing God as business owner. We're seeing God as Father now seeing god as father it's about this relationship so instead of it's based upon performance listen this is based upon commitment commitment not our commitment necessarily to god but his commitment to you that he said i will finish what i began in you i like you i delight in you not because you're good but because of jesus and it's unconditional it's based upon grace. It's based upon His performance for us. That's where it is. So it's like a father-son relationship, not like a, a landlord-tenant, like a father and a son. So some of you dads in the room, man, you delight in hearing from your kids. You're not giving them everything you, they want because you know what's best for them, but you delight to hear from them. They have access to you. You long to, to know what, what's hurting them, and what their fears and their struggles. And that father-son and son relationship as it's supposed to be. some ways, because of sin, it's not the case. But the way God's designed it is to be just acceptance. Regardless of what that son does, he's a son. Regardless of what that daughter does, she's a daughter. It's there. It's just mutual, this love and commitment. So that statement's on the screen. Here's this, this, this balance that we have to figure out. Religion says, religion being what we do. There's a good way to do religion, but we're using religion like, I do all of this stuff for God to love me. Religion says, if I perform, I'm accepted. And it's going to influence our prayers. But Jesus says, I performed for you. (laughs) You get that? He lived the life we couldn't live, died the death we deserve, rose again and offers us into that identity. I performed for you. And since you are now accepted because of me, you ought to perform. That changes everything. So we now obey differently. So she's there, I still don't know. Well, I'll give you some Bible. There's a lot more. We'll just use one verse, okay? Romans chapter 8, verse 14. The words will be on the screen. Listen, if we don't understand this this doctrine of adoption and what this means, we'll never understand prayer. So let's look into what Paul says about adoption. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you to not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. You see that? It's not about you performing. There's no room for fear. You're not a slave. He's not your taskmaster. It's not the reality that you have with God anymore. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, and that crying is a good way to say that's prayer, Abba, Father. We cry out, Daddy, because we now have full access to him. You say, Derek, I don't deserve it. And the grace says, you're right, we don't. But what Jesus has accomplished is this. He's done for us what we could never do, so therefore, it's not about what we do, but what he has done, so you are now adopted. You are sons and daughters of God, fully accepted by him. And that that doesn't mean, so now I can kick back, it doesn't matter how I live. (laughs) That's not what that means. No, 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 you are now part of the family, and it changes everything about your life. The grace of God has appeared, Titus says, and it teaches us to renounce all, all ungodliness and worldly lust. The grace of God changes us. But it's not in this guilt, and it's not in this fear, it's not do more, it's try harder, it's, it's all has been done, the pressure's off, and now therefore we are changed. And then we are actually freed up and changed from the inside to actually obey. If you get that flip flopped you'll never experience the joy in Jesus. That's not Christianity. So let me just give you a couple statements, and I've got to move on to actually jump into the Lord's Prayer a little bit, okay? Okay. <laughs> But here's, some, here's three statements about adoption. I just want to read to you, okay? Just think about how this applies. And this is true for physical adoption as well. Adoption is the act of the father, not the kids. You think about that. The, people, the orphans that are all over, the orphan crisis all over our world that we want to enter into as a church family, man, those kids are just orphaned. They can't do anything about their situation. It's all an act of the father. The father's choosing, to set his love and affection on the orphans all act to the Father. And so that's true for us. I mean, we're just slaves to sin. Dad can't see the glory of Jesus. And he pursues us. He changes us. But listen, adoption is a change of legal status. Before it is a change of behavior. Adoption says, I'm you're my kid. Legally, boom. You are I'm your daddy. You are my son. You are my daughter. Before it changes anything about the behavior of that kid. And that's just the way it is with the gospel. That God says, no, no, I'm going to change your standing before me. You're accepted. You're declared to be righteous. You're not righteous. You're declared to be righteous. And therefore, you're in my family regardless of what you've done or haven't done. And that changes the way we live. Again, it's not just grace for the sake of grace. It's transformative grace. And then lastly, here's just such a beautiful reality that I pray just doesn't just fall on deaf ears. Listen, adopted kids are loved the same way that biological kids are loved. In proxy. So like, I have some friends that have adopted and if you say, so which one are your real kids and which one are your adopted kids? I mean, they'll like, get on you, right? Have you ever know anybody like that? And it makes sense. Like, no, no, these are my babies. There's no distinction. Like it's legally, they're my own, just as much as my biological kids are my own. They are the same. Just as much as I love the kid that was born to me, I love this kid that I've adopted and saved from this orphan crisis. So listen, think about what that means for your relationship with God. That just as much as God the Father loves the Son, Jesus, He loves you. Think about what that means. Think about the access and the rights. That we are joint heirs with Christ. Full access to God that we are now in Christ and Christ is in us and we have every right and standing of Jesus. We have access to him. That's not meaning we're deity, we're not God, but we have access into the very presence of God, not because of what we've done, but all because of Jesus. And the Father delights in us now just as much as he delights in Jesus. That's why Jesus prayed in John 17. I'm praying that they could enter into the joy that I've had with you, talking to the Father, that I've had with you before the world began. He invites us into that kind of joy. What good news. It's amazing. It's beautiful. And that's why he begins the Lord's Prayer in verse 9. Pray then like this. Don't pray with a self-centered focus. Don't pray about you to get acceptance from God or other people. Because he is your father. This is the, the petition that flows from all the other petitions. If we begin to understand this idea of adoption, it changes the way we pray. You pray our father. That's who you are. And so, there's a few statements here that we're going to unpack the Lord's Prayer, but don't get nervous. It's going to be a lot quicker than that. okay? But we have to understand that adoption, theologically rich foundation, or we're never going to understand the Lord's Prayer. So let's go through these very, very quickly and make some sense of this. And so as we read these, listen, this does not mean that Jesus is saying, you must pray these exact words in this exact way. He's saying, this, these, the motivations of this, the theological truths of this should be what fuels your prayer. Your prayer should be rooted around these things. Not that you have to pray this necessarily, but these, the hearts behind this should impact the way we pray. So let's, let's look into them first. God-centered prayer must have a proper view of God's sovereignty. Because he said, our Father, what? Class participation, somebody help me, I'm up here by myself. Our Father in heaven. So yes, He's your Father. Everything we've just said is absolutely true. But you've got to understand that He's in heaven. He sits above the heavens, He does as He pleases, the psalmist says. We don't want to say God is Father to be this trite little, I get to go and He does whatever I want, I sit on Daddy God's lap, as I've heard some people say, And just, my goodness. Our Father in heaven. In heaven. So listen, a few statements. The perfections of God are unchanging. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. He's the only one that is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present. He's sovereign over all things. The perfections of God are unchanging. The purposes and promises of God are unwavering. So our prayer does not change the plan of God. He's in heaven. He's exalted above us. And the aims of God are never adjusted because they are always achieved. Do you hear me? The aims of God are never adjusted because they are always achieved. He is ruling over all things at all times, Man, that is the bigness of our God. So we're not going up there and oh, God's going, oh, you're asking for that. I wasn't even thinking about that. Sure, I'll change my plan today and help you. Like, that's not how this prayer thing works. He is sovereign over all things, and the plan of God is unfolding. Listen, here we talked about this last week, so I'll move on. God has chosen to ordain prayer to be the means with which we interact with God to see His purposes accomplished. I don't know how that works. That God says, I've ordained the way that I'm going to accomplish my purpose that I've set forth to do, and I'm inviting you into it. So again, this is not a self centered prayer. This is a God centered prayer that sees, no, you're in heaven and you are doing all things. And you invite me to intimacy with you and to join you in what you're doing. So here's the prayer that flows from this God, you are God. I rest in you. You're God. So our Father in heaven, I acknowledge that you're God and I'm not. That's what we do. Let's keep moving. God-centered prayer is a platform for praise. He goes on in verse 9. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Some translations may say holy is your name. The idea of holy, we talk about this all the time, but it's the idea of set apart. That all that God is, his name is set apart. He's completely other. He's not just a better version of us. He's in a category all by himself. And he and he alone is worthy of all praise of all people everywhere. Amen? He's worthy of praise. And so that's what prayer does. It's a platform for praise. I I use prayer as a means to say to God and to magnify his worth and to say, you are the supreme treasure of my life. All my satisfaction is found in you. And I'm coming to you to say, you are worthy. God, I'm going to use prayer to get before you and to see a right view of you. And the only response is to say, yes, you are good. And I praise you for who you are. So a prayer that flows out, God, you are worthy, I worship you. Prayer must have a God-centered perspective. Let's keep going. But verse 10, I think we teach here that God-centered prayer longs for this heavenly reality to be experienced on earth. So verse 10 says, your kingdom come." your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So this idea of kingdom, listen. We know this, but God rules over all things. We just talked about that. But sin is us here wanting to resist that rule. And so what we do enter into his prayer and say, God, like all of the causes of human brokenness around me, in me is a result that I don't want to live under your rule. All of the racism, all the social injustice of this world, all the brokenness, all of the division, all of the hate, all of the pride and the religion that's far from God, everything that's in me is a direct result because I rebelled against my king. And so when we pray, your kingdom come, here's what we're praying. We're praying, God, would we be able to experience life reoriented around you being our king? Would you restore what's broken in every area of life? And we also know, I mean, we look ahead to say, he's going to come again to fix that. And so it is longing for Christ to return. But we as the church are going to live as citizens and enter in. So God, let your kingdom come. Show us what life centered around you being our Lord really looks like. And it involves every area of our existence. So we pray, God, you are Lord and King, and I submit to you. I'm not going to raise my fist in rebellion against you. I submit. Let's keep going for the sake of time. God-centered prayer surrenders our lives to our Father's will back in verse 10 we skipped it but your kingdom come he says your will be done on earth as it is in heaven so he's saying your will be done God I'm trusting you listen when life doesn't make sense when things don't go my way when sickness happens when suffering happens when I've been sinned against when I've been wronged I'm surrendering my will to yours Life doesn't make sense, so how do we make sense of this world? And how can we endure this way? And how can we say, God, your plan and what you're doing in the world is much bigger than me right now, so I'm taking my will and I'm crushing it and I'm laying it on the altar and saying, you take my life. My life is a check that you can use for your glory however you see fit. Do you see your relationship with God that way? I trust you. My will, I'm surrendering to yours. Your will be accomplished through my life. You say, Derek, how in the world can I trust God to do that. That seems like a really big thing. Like, I don't know if I'm ready to do that. Well, listen, I think that your will be done is reminiscent of Jesus. Remember when he prayed right before he climbed up on our cross? What did he say? Luke 22. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, say it with me, not my will, but yours be done. You See, how can I trust Jesus with my life? Why would I ever pray, God, you get your will and your glory out of my life, regardless of what that means for me? How can I do that? What's the foundation for me to actually say that? It's because Jesus is not standing from a distance and saying, hey, surrender everything to me. He does because he's the Lord over eternity, but he also enters in. And he suffered instead of you. He took your sin on himself. He said, I'm not going to stay away from you. I'm going to enter in so that I can save you. So we are worshiping a God who says, I submit. And so you say, why doesn't God do something about the suffering of the world? The gospel says he has. He's already come in and paid for this on the cross, and he's going to reconcile all things. We can trust this God. He's worth our surrender. You say, God, you're having all this stuff going in my life. I don't know if I can give you my will. Do you really love me? And you look at the cross, and the gospel says, yes, I love you. See your Savior kneeling down, about to bear the wrath of God for you, and he looks into that cup and says, I'm going to take their place. I'm going to be separated from you, God, but not in my will, but yours be done. You can trust a God like that. That says, I have done something about your sin. I have done something about your suffering. So we say, God, you are good, and you do good. I trust you. I trust you. That's what this Lord's Prayer is saying. So when we have these moments of life, and we come and we're with the psalmist and we're honest to say, I'm hurting and I don't get it. But we come to a place where we say, not my will, but your will be done. And we do that because of the gospel. A couple more, we're finished. Verse 11 says, Give us this day our daily bread. And so God-centered prayer, ask for enough provision to live for his purposes today. I think it's what it says. So listen, you get this, we've been talking for a long time right now and we're just now getting to the point where we're really asking for things in our lives. I think so many times we jump to our prayer list of all those petitions that we're asking of God and God longs to hear from Him. He gives you access to say, ask for daily bread, provision, what you need in life. It's okay to ask for things. Pester me, God says. Come to me and keep on asking. But listen, after we have seen the glory of God exalted in the heavens, after we've prayed for his Purposes to be accomplished after we've surrendered our will to His. Now we're ready to give our prayer list to God. Because it's recentered. It's not no longer on ourselves, it's on who God is. And so we're realigning our focus on Him. And so now we have the proper heart to ask. And we need to ask. I'm so bad about this. Like I don't want to ask for anything because I feel like it's trite. But there's somehow this balance of seeing the glory of God. He's going to get his glory and his purposes. I want to submit to that. But yet I have these needs and maybe even their wants and I can't really divide what's want and need. Just go to him. As little kids, go messy like you would to your daddy and say, this is what I'm needing. And prayer changes us in that. So God, you are my provision. You are what I need. But you're also my provider. You're the giver of every good gift. So God, I need you. I'm asking for my daily provision because if you don't give it to me, I can't have what I need. So I'm I'm submitting to you and saying you are everything. So one more. God-centered prayer confesses our need for grace and compels us to extend that grace to others. because He says, verse 12, And forgive us our debts, as we have also forgiven our debtors. So forgive us our debts, God. I have a great need for your grace. I've sinned against you, so part of prayer is confession. And repentance to say, as I see you high and lifted up, I realize how low and wretched and unholy I am. So God, I confess, I'm, I have not loved you with my whole heart, and I have not loved my neighbor as myself, and I repent. That's what we just did with the Lord's Supper. We, re- we acknowledge that we are great sinners, and we need His forgiveness. And so we go, asking for His forgiveness as part of prayer. But then listen, it also humbles us and says, I need grace, but I also have to extend that grace to you. I'm not in this prideful arrogance. I'm not going to forgive you for the wrong you did for me. Because no, no, when I see that I've been forgiven much in Christ, I'm compelled to forgive other people. So part of prayer is to say, God, how can I live at peace among all people? How can I walk in community and and reconciliation? How can I not let bitterness creep up in my life? How can I not let pride control me? Because as I see my need for Jesus, and I see that he's going to forgive me of everything because of Christ's sake, I now am compelled to say, and I'm going to enter into my relationships. I'm going to show that exact same grace to other people. We, we ask for that. So who is in your life right now that you need to extend grace to? What areas of sin is just unconfessed? You haven't really repented and, and, and believed. And so we have to say, God, you are my righteousness. I repent to you. And then he ends with verse 13. And lead us not into, to, into temptation, but deliver us from evil. God-centered prayer acknowledges the war within us and the war against us. He says, listen, this is a good way to end. I promise we're almost finished. I'm going to shut my Bible to prove it. Um, it says, God, there is a war raging for my soul. And all this being devoted to prayer, like, guys, you've got to look at this. There's a battle. It's not against flesh and blood, it's against spiritual principalities of, of witnesses and dark places. There's a battle that Satan wants to kill, steal, and destroy you. There's an enemy against us that's happening, but there's also, listen, there's a spiritual warfare that's want to rob us of worship and r- attempt to rob God of his glory. There's a real enemy and a real culture that's against this, but there's also a war within your heart. The, the doubts and the arrogance of all of our souls, that there's a battle in our souls to believe. That's why Paul would tell Timothy to fight the good fight of faith. And part of what prayer does is say, I'm going to enter in, and I acknowledge there's a battleground for my soul. I have to believe what's true, and prayer helps me to do that. It recenters my focus. I've got to fight the fight. And I also know there's a battle against me, and I want to have protection. That's why one of the armors of God that God gives, He gives all this honor, but one of them is praying in accordance with the Spirit of God. We need prayer as a weapon against the enemy against us there's a real battle waging for the glory of god and his name among the nations the mission of god we must be desperate in prayer that's why we just saw that video earlier from a a missionary couple in our church like prayer is the work and we're never going to advance the great commission if we are not a people devoted to prayer We need protection from the enemy. We need life and focus in our own hearts. And we need God to do what we can't do. We need him to transform hearts. We need him to send us and give us eyes to see the city and the world, the nations, the way he has seen them. This is a supernatural thing. We don't have what it takes. So let us be devoted to prayer. So we say, God, you are my defense. I run to you. I run to you. So we want to do that now. We're going to run to God, and we're going to pray these things. We're going to thank the Lord for this Good news, and so if you'll bow with me uh, and close your eyes, and the service is not over, so let me uh, ask that you please don't check out on me, but head bowed, eyes closed, just in a posture of prayer. We're going to give you a space uh, to listen to what the Spirit of God is saying to you from His Word, not from a preacher, not from me, but from uh, His Word. So I just want to read this passage. You guys can just remain seated, eyes closed, in and in, in praying to God to say, God, how, what are you speaking to me in this? Hebrews chapter 10 says of Jesus, listen, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, And let us hold fast the confession of our hope for he who promised is faithful. So what we want to do is come now and say, God, you're teaching me all this stuff about prayer, but I want to draw near with confidence. and It's not based on anything I've done. I draw near and I hold fast this confession of faith because of Jesus, because of what he has done for me. Because I had this great high priest who's entered in, who stood in my place, so I have full access, not as a slave in fear, but as a son and a daughter in love and acceptance. So, God, we want to repent of making prayer about us, and we want to say, God, we trust what you've done for us. We worship you for the gospel. We thank you that we have an intercessor for us. Even now, Jesus, we come on in his name, not our name. And we thank you, <laughs> you, that because... You have made a way we can come boldly to your throne of grace to find help when we need it. And so, Lord, we draw near. We praise you for who you are. We ask that you be glorified. We confess our sins to you, and we submit to your will. And for those of us in here that don't know Jesus, listen. You have no access into the presence of God. Like you, In our sin, we can't approach a holy God, but he has done for you what we've always talked about this morning, what you cannot do for yourself So we invite you to Jesus to believe the gospel. We would love to talk to you after this service about what that means, what it means to repent and believe in him because not everybody has access, only those who've been made holy by Jesus. So we're gonna sing this truth out together, church. Before the throne of God, I have a strong and perfect plea. Uh, So let's stand as we're still in a posture of prayer in response to the word of God. Let's sing this song in trust and faith.